Hello and welcome to Hyperlink, a 22S media podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Curie, and with me here is my guest, Noah LaBarba. Say hello, Noah. Hello. Now, Noah, have you ever been on the uh, interwebs and been on there for a very specific reason? Absolutely. But then you're like, ooh, what's that? What's that thing over there? And then you, you click on that. Happens on a daily basis. Uh, and then there's another thing. There's like a little hyperlink. Yes. And you click on that. I'm familiar with this. And then you click on another thing. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you're just the expert in, in a super obscure topic. Yes. That, that's happened to you? That's probably what brought me here today, yes. <laughs> what topic have you? has that happened to you with? The Rubik's Cube. Ooh. So we're going to talk about Rubik's Cubes today. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about how, how you got into Rubik's Cubes? How I got into the Rubik's Cube? Yes. Yes. So when I was 12, I'm 23 now. Mm-hmm. When I was 12, I broke my leg and I was in a cast for a few months and I couldn't go to school for the first month. It was a pretty bad break, so I couldn't risk disturbing it at all, and I was bored. So I was in my room, and I found a Rubik's Cube that everyone has one. So I found mine, and I was playing with it, and I decided I want to learn how to solve this. And I spent a full day playing with it, and with the help of a solution manual, of course, I figured out how to solve it, and I memorized the solution, Mm -hmm. and... It took me about three minutes to solve it with that original method. And as I got better, I got my time down to two minutes and then a minute and a half. And I just kept practicing and learning more about it. And now I can solve it in about 15 seconds. That's that's crazy. Could you give me a brief explanation of how to solve a Rubik's Cube? Like if I just wanted to go home and, and solve it really fast. Yes. So the method to solve it, the most basic method is called CFOP, which is an acronym CFOP. C stands for cross. F stands for first two layers, O stands for orientation of the last layer, and P stands for permutation of the last layer. So there's four main steps, and there's some sub-steps in between. But the most general rule is that you solve it by layers, not by sides. If you solve Mm -hmm. the white side and then the orange side and then the green side, you're going to mess up what you've already done, and it'll be impossible. But if you solve it by layers, you'll, you'll get to the end. Yeah, because I'm, I'm very proud of my skill at solving exactly one layer of a Rubik's Cube. Yes. And then I never get yes. anywhere farther than that. Well, that's something to be said. If you can solve one side, you definitely understand enough about the cube to solve a layer. And if you can solve a layer, then with a few hours of practice, you can probably learn to solve the whole thing with the help of a guide. It's very rare for somebody to be able to solve a Rubik's Cube completely on their own. I certainly wasn't able to do it. If you spent a day with the solution guide, you could figure it out, no problem. For sure. Can you tell me a little bit about the history of the Rubik's Cube? Yeah, so the, we talked more about this on the video. Uh, yes, I, I've failed to mention this at the beginning of the podcast, but um, this this podcast is a companion podcast to a video that um, that you can find on the 22S video um, YouTube channel where um, we we talked to Noah about the Rubik's Cubes and we uh, um, we play with a few of them. And, yeah, we got to see some yeah. interesting ones. So I would recommend checking that out first before before listening to this um, and then, then coming back later or or just listen to this. It doesn't yeah, really matter. But I'll, I'll give a brief overview of the history just to catch everyone up mm-hmm. or to refresh the memory. So it was invented by a Hungarian architecture professor by the name of Erno Rubik. And it was it hit the market in 1980, but it was invented slightly before that. And he did not invent it as a puzzle. He invented it to show that you could, it was a proof of concept that you could bind pieces together without fusing them. So each piece of the Rubik's Cube is 
stuck to the pieces around it because it doesn't fall apart, but it can move freely. So yeah. it's a proof of concept. So nothing's like glued in really, right? Except for maybe the centerpieces, some, some right? Some things are, are stuck in, yes. Mm-hmm. And that's actually uh, the reason it's solvable. There are 43 quintillion possible <laughs> combinations of the Rubik's Cube, and only one is the solved state. So if the odds of solving the cube were one in 43 quintillion, literally nobody would have ever solved the cube. It would be yeah. impossible. But there are so many limitations due to what you mentioned of the pe- some of the centerpieces being fixed in their positions that allows cubers to understand and deduce information about the cube and then solve it. That's cool. What, uh, he had a bunch of other inventions and stuff too, right? Yeah. So once he invented it and it caught popularity and it became a toy, it was produced by the ideal toy company and it was the best selling toy. It's actually still the best selling toy of all time. 350 million Rubik's cubes were sold. He and also he had also invented something called the Rubik's snake or the Rubik's twist, same puzzle. Mm-hmm. And it's a it looks like a snake, but you twist it up into a ball. And so instead of solving colors, you're solving a shape. And then he also invented something called the Rubik's magic and the master magic. The master magic is just a bigger version of the magic, and the magic is like a piece it's pieces of plastic that are bound together with string but if you imagine folding a piece of paper in half the only way to unfold it is undoing what you did mm-hmm. but a magic this is why it's called the magic is if you fold it in half horizontally you can unfold it vertically it's very hard to I, i'm <clears> trying to me. even figure out how that, it's very hard possible. to picture it's very hard to picture but if you want to pull up a video of one or if you want to just look up some pictures it's pretty cool to watch it Mm -hmm. it bends your idea of what's possible but once you see it it definitely makes sense i don't know how it works i don't know the (laughs) mechanism there's a certain pattern of string that you have to wrap the pieces in and i don't know what it is because it's it's fishing line so unless you really spend some time and look at it which i haven't you won't understand it but yeah you can fold it over and then you can unfold it the way you folded it or you can unfold it perpendicular to that and in doing so, your goal is to link these three unlinked rings that are printed on the tiles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's uh, a cool puzzle. I have one, but I wasn't able to find it to bring it to the video, unfortunately. For sure. Can you tell me a little about the competitions? Yes. So there are official competitions. There was one in 1982, and the winner won the competition with a time of 22 seconds. But after that, there was no official competition until 2003. And there have been competitions consistently since then even today the competition format is that what you want to know yeah the format yeah so the way it works is you bring your own cube and it has to be a legal cube and that means it has to have independent colors with sides that are not textured or you you basically can't learn anything from it using any of your other senses for example if you brought a cube to a competition and one of the sides like the red side had Uh, sandpaper on it or Mm -hmm. was textured and then all the other sides were not like that that would be illegal because you could feel that there was a red piece on the back of the cube before you looked so it could save you time Mm -hmm. it's hard to imagine that that little advantage could make a difference but it actually can so that's an example of what a legal cube constitutes do they uh do they inspect the cube before they do yes so the contest officiators you bring your cube to them and they check to see if it's a legal cube. It almost always is because most of the cubes that are sold 
are legal because if they weren't legal, they wouldn't sell. So they're brought to the table and then the officiators scramble the cube. And they don't just scramble it randomly. There's a written scramble. There's notation for the cube. There's a letter that indicates each side. And if the letter is by itself, it means you're supposed to turn that side clockwise. Or if it has an apostrophe on it, we call that a prime. So that would mean counterclockwise. Or if it has a two after it, that would mean twice. So R2, U, F prime would mean turn the right side twice, turn the top clockwise, and turn the front counterclockwise. So there's a string of 20 to 30 of those moves and everybody's cube is scrambled the same way. If there's 100 people in the competition, 100 cubes get mixed up exactly the same way. That's how they make it fair. So, so there's no one getting super lucky with like a super easy scramble or anything like that? So the thing with an easy scramble is it's only easy if you know the most efficient solution. So if you are a really, really good cuber and you get a solution and you can recognize that it's a lucky scramble, then it's lucky to you. But to the, to the person next to you that might not be as experienced or might use a different method than you, it's not lucky to them. But yes, some people can get lucky because they understand a method that is optimal for this specific scramble and then they can solve it in the current world record is 3.47 seconds. So there's no such thing as like a, like a across the board, easy to solve cube, really. I mean, unless it was- Unless it was like halfway solved. Like mm -hmm. the first step, like I mentioned earlier, is the cross. The first step is the cross. So if the cross was already solved, that would be easy. Yeah. That would generally be considered easy. Mm -hmm. But let's say so there's a method where you solve the, all the corners first and then all the edges. So if all the corners were in place first and you were a CFOP solver, then you wouldn't consider that lucky. You'd actually kind of consider it unlucky because it's confusing. Whereas if you were a Roux solver, which is a method where you solve the corners and the sides, you'd solve two side blocks and then you solve the edges in the last corners, um, that would be a lucky scramble. Is CFOP the fastest usually? Most of the top cubers use some variation of CFOP there are multiple sub variations where they solve something called an X cross, which instead of solving just the cross, they solve the cross and the first F2L pair. F2L means first two layers. So they'll solve the cross and then they'll solve one corner and edge that's not part of the cross. And then they have less to do when they move on to the next step. The guy who just broke the world record, he solved an XX cross, which is two F2L pairs. So he only had two left. Mm -hmm. So he was able to solve the first two layers, of the cube in like two seconds which is unprecedented. But again, he was very lucky and he was good enough to recognize that he was lucky. For sure. Now, why would people want to bring their own um, Rubik's Cubes to the competition versus just having, having them at the competition? It's a good question. So cubing is like a lot of other hobbies, it's preferential. So everybody has their own preferences on how they want the cube to feel, but not one way is not necessarily better than the other. So some people might like their cube a little tighter and harder to turn because it makes them more accurate. And other people might want their cube looser and smoother. And it just depends on your style. So it also depends on what method you use. Like a lot of methods use only R and U turns. So your cube, you would want your cube to be structured towards that. But if you're a Roux solver, you're using M slices, which is flicking the middle layer of the cube independent of the layers on its side and you'd want to tune your cube differently to make that easier so it just it just depends on what your reference is and that's why you'd want to bring your own cube 
for somebody who's really good, that could make a significant difference in their ability to solve it as fast as possible because they're not used to how the cube corner cuts or how it feels when it turns. Mm-hmm. What are the, the different rules and stuff for the competitions? Like, is there anything else that I yeah, need to know so, before so going So I didn't one? finish explaining the, yeah. the format. Mm-hmm. I'll explain that first, and then I'll explain the rules because there are, like, some regulations of what constitutes a solved cube versus an unsolved cube. Mm-hmm. So once you bring your cube up and it's scrambled, again, everybody gets the same scramble, you're called up to the table where there's a timer, and the way the timer works is you put your hands on the left and the right of it, and there's a sensor that can feel your hand's presence. And as soon as you release either hand or both from the sensor, the timer starts. And so before you do that, you get the cube, you get 15 seconds to plan out your first moves. That's called inspection time. And then you place your hands on the timer, and then when you release your hands, your time starts. You solve the cube, and then you put it down and you slap the timer. So once you touch both sensors, the timer stops. So the time is technically slightly longer than it actually takes you to solve it because you have to account for that few milliseconds where your hands are leaving the timer and Mm -hmm. then the few milliseconds where your hands are returning to the timer. So that's how the timer works. And then everybody gets five solves. So they call that an average of five. And an average, in math, an average of five would be you add up all the times and divide by five. But in cubing, the average, what they do is they take your best solve and your worst solve and they throw them out. And then the middle mm-hmm. three, they average those three. So it's kind okay. of like an average of three. Why do they get rid of the the best the best one? So let's say you got a lucky scramble. Like you recognize mm-hmm. that it was lucky, like we mentioned earlier. Yeah. That would prevent your average from misrepresenting your ability to solve the cube. So for example, I can solve the cube in about 15 seconds. If I solved it a hundred times, my average would be very close to 15 seconds. Mm -hmm. But let's say I got a lucky solve and I got an 11 second solve and then four solves that were around 15 seconds. That 11 second solve is gonna pull my average below what I'm truly capable of and it will make me, Mm -hmm. it'll represent me more as a better cuber than I really am. And so it makes it so that the playing field is level and your ability shines through your luck, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then they do this, they throw out the worst solve for the same, I guess the opposite, but the same reason, if that makes sense. Yeah. The, uh, if you get a really bad solve, like you misread what algorithm you're supposed to do, or if you just totally mess it up and you get a terrible solve, that is not a reflection of you either. So using me as an example, again, if I have a 15 second average and I get a 25 second solve because I made a mistake, that doesn't jump my average way up and ruin my chances. Mm -hmm. So that's why they eliminate the highest and lowest solves. And then they take those averages and then whoever has the best one wins. Or if it's a big competition, they do rounds. So like quarterfinal, semifinal. What what other rules are there? Is that, is that everything pretty much? So that's the format. The rules, I already went over what's a, what's a legal cube. Okay, we'll go over plus two and DNF. So if a cube is truly solved, if so you can imagine that people are solving these things really fast and they're not paying attention to it being perfectly square at the end, right? Yeah, they just flick, like close, close enough. They'll flick that last turn and they'll put it down. Mm-hmm. And sometimes if you watch solves on YouTube, you'll see that the top face is not quite aligned with the rest of them. 
You mm. can tell it's solved because you're a human. You can obviously see, even if it's a move away, it's solved. Mm. But there's a rule in cubing called the plus two rule. And if the side is more than halfway past where it's supposed to be, it's considered one turn away from being solved. So that is what, that what they would do is they'd add two seconds to your time. That's why it's a plus two. So if you solved okay. it in 10 seconds and then you didn't make that last turn or you didn't quite make it past that 45 degree mark, your time would be 12 seconds. And it seems like two seconds is a lot. Well, it would definitely right? take you less time to adjust it so that it was straight yeah. than it would to not and then have two seconds added. How often does that happen in, uh, in tournaments and stuff? It happens decently often. Um, not very often at the top level. The people who are really, really good. There's actually professional speed cubers that get paid to travel to competitions uh -huh. and do this. Obviously, they're doing this day in and day out, and their livelihood depends on it. So they're pretty well trained to not do it. But at like the moderate level, it, it can definitely happen. It's happened to me before because I'll get you know overexcited and I'm getting a really good mm -hmm. time, and then I just want to slap that timer so I get my time as low as possible, and then didn't quite make it. So then my, my great time gets shattered. <laughs> and then the other rule is a DNF. So uh, by the same token, if your, move, if your cube is two or more moves away from being solved, that's considered a DNF, did not finish. Mm -hmm. And that, that's another reason they throw out the worst solve. If you get a DNF, that's your thrown out solve. If you get two DNFs, your average is a DNF and you're basically out of the round. But if you get a DNF, you still have a chance in the competition. So it's mm -hmm. like a courtesy. So yeah, another thing that can happen is because the cubes, the speed cubes are so loose, the corners can actually turn independently of the sides. And that's called a corner twist. Okay. It's kind of hard to picture. But when the world record was 5.6, Felix Zemdegs, who's one of the best cubers in the world, he's probably the best. Wait, but cor corners turning independently of the sides. Yeah. So imagine a fully solved cube, mm -hmm. but one corner is rotated clockwise or counterclockwise. Okay. compared to what it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. That is impossible to achieve by scrambling it and solving it. Because that's, this is another limitation of the cube. The corners rotate in groups. So they either rotate opposite directions in pairs or they rotate the same direction in groups of three, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you can never have one corner. Like, let's say your cube is completely solved and you have three corners with the white sticker facing the top. You have the white side on top. And then one with the white side on the right, that's impossible. Mm -hmm. You would have to have another piece somewhere with the white sticker on the side. So at, a, at some point they just spun it too hard and then it- Yes, and it, uh, yes. so they, they cut the corner too hard and it caused the corner to twist and then it wasn't solved. So the Felix Zemdegs, when the world record was 5.6, he got a 5.3, but when he touched the timer, they inspected the cube and he had had a corner twist. Mm -hmm. So it was considered a DNF. So uh -huh. he broke the world record, but it was a DNF because of the corner twist. Did people still consider him <clears throat> to be the world record holder or not? No, no. Not at all. I mean, because the world record has to be official. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone considered him good because he's still really, really good. He averages like sub six. So, and I think he's gotten sub five averages, which is unheard of. But um, that wouldn't count as a world record. He broke it later. And then his record was recently broken. That's what a corner twist is. In corner cutting, we've been saying it, but I don't think I explained it. That's like, if you've ever used an old Rubik's Cube, you know that the sides have to be really well lined up before you turn the next side. Yeah. 
Because it'll get stuck, and then you got to go yes. back and finish. So, like, yeah. let's say you're turning the top side, and then you want to turn the right side. You have to make sure the top side is exactly lined up with the rest of the cube before you turn the right side. Cutting corners allows you to turn that right side before you finish turning the top side. Mm-hmm. And when these guys are turning at, like, I think 12 turns per second or even higher, which is really high, That's if you can imagine. crazy. At their peak. It's not for the full, the full solve, but per for their algorithms that they have memorized, they're turning up upwards of 11 or 12 turns per second. Mm-hmm. They're not making sure that those sides are all perfectly aligned. They're cutting corners frequently. So that's what makes a speed cube different from a regular Rubik's cube. It's a little stretchier, like it can... Yeah. So a regular Rubik's cube, the centers are riveted into the core and there's no spring. So they rotate freely, but they don't have any give. Mm-hmm. A speed cube, the centers are screwed into the core so the screw can be tightened or loosened to the user's liking and that's what we call that's what we call tuning a cube and then as they stretch that that allows the corners to cut if that makes sense Hmm. yeah and then you can also lubricate the cubes and make the pieces glide over each other better and then as you use the cube grooves in the plastic develop and it breaks in and it starts to feel smoother and that's why people prefer to use their own cube Mm -hmm. another reason why people prefer to use their own cube Cool. Are the the competitions ones a lot more expensive? So the cool thing about cubing is it's it's not a super expensive hobby. The best cubes around are under twenty dollars usually. Oh, sick. Yeah, the one I have, I got it. I got mine from a competition uh, from another competitor for ten dollars, <laughs> which um, I don't know why he sold it to me for so cheap. Because even brand new, it's worth more than that. And uh, the reason a brand new one would be less valuable is because it's not broken in, it's not tuned. Yeah. So you would want one that's been broken in and taken well, good care of. So he could have definitely sold it for more, but I was going to jump on that deal and I did. <laughs> nice. Cool. So they're not very expensive, but you can get something, if you really want to fork out some dough, you can get something called a smart cube. Um, a smart <laughs> cube. Yeah, that makes smart everything now. It has sensors in it that can track your moves and you can use it to optimize your solving method. Mm -hmm. So I did some research on them. I don't own one because they're like a hundred dollars, but, um, what they are, they're Bluetooth, they have Bluetooth connectivity and there's an app you can get for your phone or your computer. And it can show you the sequence of moves you used to solve each part of the cube. So if you're a CFOP solver, then it'll show you what moves you did to make the cross, what moves to make each pair, and then your OLL and your PLL. And then you can maybe like analyze it and yeah. figure out where yeah. you can improve exactly. and stuff? Okay. Exactly. And then there's other, um, there's other functions of it too. So one of the things that the softwares allow you to do are the software will tell you what move to make, and then you make it. And then once it recognizes you've made it, it'll tell you another move to make. And it's basically training you to turn faster so the rate will get up uh-huh. towards that 11 or 12 turns per second mm-hmm. that the pros can do. And then it also has games. So <laughs> there's another one that I, this one looks kind of cool. There's a digital rendering of the cube on your phone or on your computer. And it'll show a little wizard standing on one of the stickers. <laughs> and it'll show you a portal on a different sticker. And your goal is to move the wizard from the location it's at to the location of the portal. But mm-hmm. the challenge is there's also bombs on other stickers. So if you move any of those, then the cube explodes. It doesn't actually explode. Yeah. It explodes yeah, yeah, in yeah. the 
it explodes in the app. Mm-hmm. So um, you have to, it's kind of like augmented reality. You yeah. don't actually, it's not really augmented reality because you're not seeing the bombs on the physical cube, but you can imagine it on the cube. Is there any virtual cubing? Like online chess type of thing for <laughs> cubes? Um, there are online cubes. There are free ones you can pull up. I don't know what the links are to them, but if you are if you really want to use a cube, but you really don't want to spend $10 on a cube, <laughs> you can pull up one on Google for free uh-huh. and you can move it with your mouse. But I've used them and they're a huge pain mm-hmm. because when you're solving a cube, you you turn sides, but you also rotate the cube a lot. And on a digital cube, you can only see half of it at a time because the other half is at the back. Mm-hmm. So to turn a side, you click on it and slide it. But to rotate the cube, you click somewhere else and slide it. And usually, yeah. in my experience, you always click the wrong spot. <laughs> like you're trying mm-hmm. to turn a side, but you're actually rotating the cube. And then you try to rotate it, but you end up turning the side and you mess up your solution. And you start over. So... I mean, they're fun. <laughs> I know I'm not painting them in a great light, but uh-huh. uh, they're they're cool. From a coding perspective, they're really cool. Uh-huh. But um, from a useful perspective, I don't enjoy using them. For sure. But they exist, yes. We mentioned in the in the video that there was a, a um, there was a, a TV show for the yes. Rubik's Cube. I found the intro. Oh boy! To to that um, <laughs> to the TV show. Um, while I'm pulling it up, can you give a little background on on the TV show? So it was called Rubik the Magic Cube, and it aired right around the height of the cube's popularity in the early '80s. And it was a half-hour show. There were 13 episodes, and it was about a, a scrambled Rubik's cube fell off the back of a car, and a group of children found it, and when they solved it, it grew a face and legs and it came to life and it could fly and it had superpowers and i know you guys can't see the cube that i that i have pulled up on my phone right now but it is the most terrifying cube it's got the little yeah it is very it's supposed to be sweet but it's kind of scary it's It's huge too it's got a little gremlin face on it yeah and it's so much bigger than the kids okay i'm gonna i'm gonna play it right now and you you guys will just hit the audio because i feel like that's that's good enough You'll, you'll understand what this is Hello, my name is Rubik. Oh, the amazing cube. I think I said magic cube. And there's a lot of weird things in that that I think you kind of need to break down as well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) To say the least. They are in a horse-drawn carriage. Yes. And are they trapped in the horse-drawn carriage? Or no. The kids? No, the kids are just in the the, woods for some reason. The kids are in the woods. At night. (laughs) And they're wearing, like, normal clothes, so this is not, like, horse-drawn carriage type time. Yeah. That's another thing I noticed. And They're wearing period correct clothes, so who's driving a horse-drawn carriage? Right, and a big treasure chest falls out, <laughs> and then... The, on, the contents of which are only the Rubik's the Cube. O- only the Rubik's Cube. <laughs> and then a child picks up the Rubik's Cube and immediately solves it. 
Yeah, his the time that it took him to solve that is still faster than the current <laughs> the current world record. And then pops up a little gremlin-faced Rubik's cube, who says, "Hello, my name is Rubik," and then proceeds to beam them up into the sky. <laughs> Uh, it's, there's, go check it out. There's a bunch of videos on YouTube as well of the, a few of the episodes. I watched them. They, uh, <laughs> did it make you a better person? It made me a better person. I learned a lot of, a lot of life <laughs> lessons and, and to just open random treasure chests in the woods, you know? Yes. Only good things come out of yeah. woods treasure chests. <laughs> Exclusively good things. Yes. But, um, I think that's all for today. Thank you, Noah, for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, so again, check out the video that we have to go along with the podcast. Um, there will be more podcasts coming up as well and more videos to go along with it. Uh, thank you for listening.